Welcome to Transatlantic Takeaway by Common Ground Berlin and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. In our shows, we explore the impact of key international developments on the European Union and the United States. I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. My co-host, Rachel Tausenfreund, is on leave. It was six months ago that Chancellor Olaf Scholz made a bold speech to the Bundestag pledging to end Germany's long-standing military-averse policies. We must therefore ask ourselves, what capabilities does Putin's Russia have and what capabilities do we need to counter this threat, today and in the future? One thing is clear. We must invest significantly more in the security of our country in order to protect our freedom and our democracy in this way. Since then, we've seen him pose in front of a tank. That isn't something you generally see from the German post-World War leadership, as well as tough talk from Schultz, as we heard during a late August visit to Prague. Putin is genau dieses vereinte Europa ein Dorn im Auge. This united Europe is a thorn in Putin's side because it doesn't fit into his worldview, in which smaller countries submit to major powers. That makes it all the more important for us to defend our vision for Europe together. We support Ukraine economically, financially, politically, and on a humanitarian level, but also militarily. Germany has fundamentally changed course on this in recent months, and will support Ukraine as long as necessary. But is this new era of deterrence and protection actually happening? And can Ukraine count on Germany militarily or otherwise? To answer these questions and more, I'm joined in the studio by Suda David Wilp, GMF's Senior Transatlantic Fellow and Deputy Director of the Berlin Office, and Anna Sauerbrei, Foreign Editor for the Weekly Die Zeit and a contributor to the New York Times op-ed section. Welcome to you both. Hi, great to be here. Thank you, Soraya. Sura, remind us of the main points of Schultz's Zeitenwende, or sea change. So the speech that Chancellor Schultz gave at the end of February was most certainly a turning point speech for Germany and for the rest of Europe. I think the main topics that were really a surprise was that Germany was going to finally look at itself as a military power in order to defend peace and security in Europe and also defend its own democracy. It also recognized that diplomacy for the sake of diplomacy could somehow sometimes be defeatist. Secondly, the fact that Germany was going to take a harder stance against Russia was definitely a sea change since this country historically has always had some historical guilt with regard to Russia and also the fact that Germany decided to become energy independent. These are all points that were certainly raising eyebrows all across the world. So have there been any reforms, though, to the Bundeswehr that are worth noting? From what I've read, the regular German defense budget is set to remain around 50 billion euros until 2026. So how do you how do you become more militarily proficient if you're not paying for it? Well, this is true. I mean, spending money doesn't necessarily mean that um, there will be a mental shift in the armed forces and that Germany will also look at its military to participate in operations that perhaps in the past it tried to evade. 
But I think the fact that he casually talked about buying drones and, you know, also the fact that um, being a part of the nuclear security umbrella, these were things that were perhaps taboo. I mean, it was even a topic that was sort of avoided during the coalition talks last year. So this sort of newfound confidence in being a security partner that's capable um, both in the transatlantic alliance but also within Europe is certainly refreshing. The question remains, will you know meeting the 2% be enough for Germany to be a security partner for the future? Anna, do you see any changes that are happening, though, that suggest to you that Seitenwende is actually well underway? Well, not yet, I would say. Um, what we've seen is a lot of announcements, and now we have to wait to see for German policymakers to follow through with it. Where exactly will the money be spent on and will there be the coordination with European partners that Scholz just has repeatedly promised in his speech in Prague, in his uh, great European speech, as it was announced to us journalists. I think this would be important points where Germany could also be a leader in Europe, as he and others in the Social Democratic Party have also promised to really take the lead on coordinating that effort and being a stronger military power. Gazprom has announced that it is again stopping its natural gas delivery to Germany. What role do such Russian pressure tactics play on the pace and depth of the Zeitenwende, Anna? Well, I think what Russia is trying to do, of course, is to feed on, on the fears of Germans, of ordinary Germans who are already looking at their energy bills, who are scared for the bills they will receive probably early next year uh, when the payments are due for what has been consumed in 2022. Whether this works out is a question of political leadership too, because so far we see the German government not budging to these efforts. Um, we've seen one big package of support for German consumers. Another one will probably follow this week. And I think uh, this is the way to follow through to counter these attempts. Um, but of course, Moscow is playing the long game. Um, they are hoping that sometime this winter, when maybe uh, people take to the streets out of fear, the German government will eventually change its policies. But I actually don't see this happening. I think the path that Suda has described, uh, finally being energy independent as uh, a path that we have to take. And uh, I don't think they can turn it back. So now, where does the German public stand right now on the Zeitenwende? I mean, Anna talked a little bit about this. The Zeitenwende speech was really revolutionary and didn't cause much of a stir with the public. I think most Germans welcome the fact that he was investing in the armed forces because for most Germans, it was kind of a moment where they realized that The world of 1989 is now yesterday, and Russia's aggression is a threat to um, the security order of Europe. And if you ask most Germans, they do see the importance of supporting Ukraine. The question is whether this resolve will hold through as we enter a cold winter. And as Anna mentioned, um, energy bills are expected to triple. But on the flip side, I think the site Venda has also made Germany realize that it needs to be quicker when it comes to reform. Plans to perhaps um, go through with the energy Venda to also invest in the military have always been on 
policymakers' agenda. But the war in Ukraine has hastened the site and venda. And at the end of the day, the site and venda is also about German interest. It's not necessarily about Ukraine. And I think that's why there's also some disappointment with the site and venda. It's a slow process, but it's going to transform Germany and it's going to transform Europe. Unfortunately, it may not help. Ukraine in the short term because Germany is not necessarily equipped to deliver these military weapons as quickly as they'd like to. Although Schultz and um, his government could do more to make sure that Ukraine is better equipped to deter Russia. I wanted to follow up on something you touched on earlier, which was transatlantic relations. And so basically my question is, how does Washington view Germany's progress during these past six months when it comes to this uh, very profound speech? I think um, policymakers in Washington welcome Schultz's initiative. Uh, this has been a long time coming. Um, even before Trump, President Obama had also asked Germans to spend more to reach the 2% commitment of NATO uh, by 2024, which the Germans were set to miss. But now that there is this investment of 100 billion euros and maybe even a change to the Constitution to anchor the 2% commitment, I think Germany will be the largest defense spender in Europe moving forward. And the question will be, will it be able to develop a strategic mentality to be a capable partner for the United States when it comes to future challenges? But is there frustration that six months have passed? And again, the money that was supposed to be spent, $100 billion you mentioned, that's not in the foreseeable future. No, I don't think that there's frustration. I think Washington sees Berlin as a key partner in Europe, not just for the current war, but also to collaboration when it comes to future pandemics, when it comes to climate change, when it comes to R&D in um, emerging technologies. Washington sees Germany as a partner for the future. Anna, how is Ukraine feeling about Schultz and his pronouncements and this Zeitenwende? I think uh, the relationship is still difficult. Um, we've uh, seen Ukraine asking for weapons and Germany in the beginning was very slow to deliver and then it was slow to deliver on its promises. And even now we have seen more announcements um, and we must say that Germany has done something. They have delivered rocket systems. They have delivered smaller weapons to Ukraine. Germany is also training Ukrainian soldiers on the uh, very important Howitzer 2000 that Germany has delivered and which is being employed at the front lines. Um, so there is a lot done, especially from a German perspective. But of course, when you're a country at war, you want more. And there were lots of diplomatic hiccups about the visit of President Steinmeier to Ukraine, who wanted to go with a delegation of Eastern European heads of state, who was basically uninvited, <laughs> and his visit was rejected. Scholz took a very long time uh, after that to go to visit uh, Ukraine. And even now, we still see uh, the Ukrainian ambassador uh, in Berlin demanding more weapons to be delivered and Germany being slow on that. So I think it still is uh, a difficult relationship, but it's getting a little better. And we must say that Annalena Baerbock, our foreign minister, I think has a very good relationship to the Ukrainian Foreign Minister Kulema. So that's uh, a relationship that both states can rely on, I think. So is Germany's credibility rising in Europe? I mean, in terms of being a Europe? 
European partner. Obviously, no one really rivals the U.S. commitment and the Ukrainians uh, lean on America more. But is Germany seen, I guess, more favorably than France or other countries that have been helping Ukraine? I guess it depends on who you ask. Um, I think it's seen more favorable uh, than it used to be in some Eastern European states, also in France, um, also in Italy, um, whose leaders, the French leader, of course, has welcomed Germany's efforts to step up its military um, budget. But among the Eastern European states, there are some who think that Germany, given its size and economic size, could still do more. Um, that's Poland, that's Slovakia. Some of the promises um, Germany hasn't delivered on include a weapon swap uh, with Poland. Um, Poland has sent Soviet tanks to Ukraine and was promised German modern uh, equipment instead. This uh, hasn't materialized yet. And the same is true for other Ringtäusche uh, weapon swaps uh, with Eastern European countries. So, yeah, I think there is still a lot of disappointment. And I think they are maybe also waiting for a change of tone for a bold um, public concession that Germany has been wrong in its Eastern European politics, in its Russia politics in the past decades. And that was something that Scholz could have delivered in Prague. He did address Eastern European states, um, but he did not say we were wrong and I apologize or something along these lines. So I think there's still a lot of, yeah, bad feelings that need to be tended to in, in uh, Germany's diplomatic relations to these countries. So to, why not apologize? Why does Schultz and the SPD and this coalition government, why is there hesitation? Well, I mean, President Steinmeier did sort of apologize and admit that we had been wrong um, when it came to our policies with Russia and specifically uh, building out the Nord Stream pipelines. I do think that Schultz is, uh, rather than apologizing, his actions when it comes to the site and Venda speech, also, as Anna mentioned, the trip to Prague, it was very significant that he went there to give the speech, certainly, um, because, you know, the Czech Republic is president of the European Council right now. But I think he's hoping that his actions will perhaps show Central and Eastern European countries that We do need to take you seriously. He also talked about EU enlargement, about that being necessary. So I think that that's the hope. But I do think that Anna is right. There needs to be a bit of a reckoning about Germany's immediate past and how it's led to this dependency that's really now made Europe very vulnerable for the next couple of years. You want to add something, Anna? Yes, I wanted to remind that, uh, of course, Steinmeier did apologize, but he said, I was wrong like everybody else. And that's just not true. And not everybody was wrong about um, Putin's intentions in Ukraine. I think he could have said it more openly, um, that you were right, you were right, and we didn't take it seriously enough. Yeah, I mean, Anna's correct. I think the only party that could sort of get off scot-free is the Green Party. Um, they had been warning for years that the pipelines weren't a, a good idea, but the two major parties here in Germany, the Conservatives, the CDU, and the SPD, thought that this was a relationship that could be managed. They looked at the Cold War um, and used that as precedent for continuing this trade with Russia, not thinking about being vulnerable and that Russia would perhaps use um, the pipelines as a weapon of war. And that's exactly what's happening, as Anna mentioned. Sure, Putin's goal is to take over Ukraine, 
But I think he ultimately also wants to destabilize Europe. And the key to destabilizing Europe is Germany. Germany is one of the major pillars of Europe. One last question before we go to break here, and that is, would either of you describe the Zeitenwende as a success? And if so, why? And if not, why not? And we'll start with Anna. I think it's too early to tell. Um, I think it can be a success. I think it's a good moment. I think many Germans are still willing to go along. Um, we still see, particularly in Western Germany, high approval rates for Germany's policies in Ukraine. But the moment mustn't be missed. How about you, Sada? Completely agree. Um, I will also say it's too early to tell, but I do think the speech was extraordinary for the content and the fact that it was not leaked and that he was able to um, deliver the speech on a Sunday on the floor of parliament. And if Germany follows through, it will definitely be a watershed moment for the country and for Europe. We're going to take a short break, and when we return, we will talk more about Germany's about-face on defense and its help to Ukraine. Stay tuned. Democracy. I'm Rachel Tausenfreund, one of the hosts of the German Marshall Fund's podcast, Out of Order. Join our conversations with leaders and experts on what the dark side of tech does to democracy, how the pandemic shapes geopolitics, and other topics of global order and disorder. You can find our episodes and miniseries at gmfus.org or wherever you find your podcasts. We are the German Marshall Fund of the United States, strengthening transatlantic cooperation since 1972. This is Common Ground Berlin, and I'm your host, Soraya Sarhadi Nelson. And I'm the senior producer, Dina El-Sayed. Each week, we bring you a podcast aimed at deepening your understanding of critical issues in Germany and beyond. But to make our podcast even better, it's important for us to hear what you think. You can share that with us by rating the show on your podcast app. You can also write us a review on the platform you use to listen to our episodes. We look forward to your feedback. And join us again next Monday on Common Ground Berlin. I'm Verena Hütter, host of The Big Ponder, the Goethe Institute's transatlantic podcast, bringing abstract concepts to life through personal radio essays. Every other week, our producers turn broad topics into captivating stories told from a U.S. and German perspective. You can find all episodes of The Big Ponder on our website, goethe.de, as well as on your favorite podcast apps. And discover the stories behind The Big Ponder on our radio show, Sounding the Big Pond. It is broadcast each Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time on WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C. We do look forward to connecting with you. Welcome back to Transatlantic Takeaway and our conversation about Germany's watershed or Zeitenwende. I'm Soraya Sarhadi Nelson and with me here in the studio are GMF's Sudo David Wilp and Die Zeit's Anna Sauerbrei. Niels Dietrich, a political scientist and professor emeritus at Free University Berlin, recently said that Zeitenwende cannot be done and many points at this stage would require renegotiation by the traffic light coalition. Anna, do you agree? And what, if anything, will Schultz have to give up in order to keep the coalition intact? 
Well, it is a difficult moment uh, for this coalition as we speak. Uh, they are convening in Misbach to discuss and we'll see how they get uh, out of it. Uh, they went in with increasingly public statements about one or the other partner. And I think the great lines of conflict are, of course, money and distribution. We have Christian Lindner, the finance minister, saying that he will not raise public debt um, or touch the debt ceiling that is written in the German constitution. And this, of course, in a situation of crisis like this, where um, aid packages are supplied to the German population, is very difficult. They have already hidden some of the large packages of money they needed for their climate change bills they needed for other reforms and it will be uh, interesting to see what they're going to do with the 100 billion that were promised to the German military whether they will really use this money to spend it on extra material on something that moves our army forward or whether they will have to spend it just to make up for all the money that hasn't been spent <laughs> in the past decades so just for the basic needs um, of German soldiers. Soda, you agree or anything you want to add to that? No, I was just going to say, I don't think the coalition agreement would necessarily hamper the site in Venda because, you know, this government did come in with the intention to transform Germany, but they were thinking more in terms of a domestic agenda and had no idea that it would have a foreign policy crisis on its hands so early into um, the first term of the government. And it was quite light when it came to foreign policy in the coalition agreement. I think they left a lot of things open, also specifically with regard to Russia and Nord Stream 2, for example. So I think there is leeway. And Germany realizes that Europe is facing a existential crisis um, to its security order. And I think people here, voters, expect the current government to act and act quickly. The question is, uh, as Anna mentioned, will the parties give up sort of sacred cows for the FDP? This would be the debt break, as she mentioned. The Greens have given up quite a lot, actually, going now to use coal uh, to generate energy, for example. And the SPD, one could also say, with regard to Russia, it's had to also swallow a lot. Members of the party were probably not happy with Schultz, Seit, and Venda's speech, but they held their tongues and let the chancellor deliver um, this revolutionary um, speech. Anna, you wanted to add something? Yes, I absolutely agree. I just want to say what makes me think that this coalition will probably hold is that when it comes to foreign policy, we may see uh, differences on the how and uh, on how to raise the money that is needed also to cushion the consequences of uh, foreign policy decisions at home. But we don't see a lot of differences on the what to do. I think on China and now that the Social Democrats have curved even on Russia, the great big foreign policy fields that are uh, interesting to these countries in the coming years. There's a great deal of agreement among the three parties now. So I think they are going to move this agenda forward once they have agreed on the how. Can Ukraine expect German help 
to beef up in terms of its military? Because Schultz and his government reversed Germany's longstanding policy of not sending arms to conflict zones and promised to send state-of-the-art weapons to Ukraine. What is actually being sent falls short of what Ukrainians want and also of what Eastern uh, European countries want. So do you think that's going to change or do you think it's still going to be words like, we're going to do it, we're going to do it, and then the equipment that actually gets sent falls short? I think there will be more equipment sent, and uh, I think that for some time Germany will continue to lean in, particularly with the training of Ukrainian soldiers and equipment. I think what would have been a better way to tackle the European dimension is to go and find allies in the European Union first on bringing together military equipment, on strengthening, for example, the European Defense Agency to coordinate those efforts um, and maybe present some first steps in that direction because now he has said it and now we have to wait again for really concrete policy steps to be taken. So what I would like him to do is like take a package of suggestions to the next European Council and say, okay, we have a defense project A and B, and we're now trying to coordinate this further. I mean, we have the PASCO policy in the European Union in place, which is exactly made. Can you um, explain that policy just for listeners who may not know that acronym? It's the idea that the uh, defense industries in the different European countries team up in order not to duplicate uh, capabilities in all the 27 European states, but to build some capabilities together. That saves a lot of money um, and that would be like a most reasonable thing to do now that many European countries are facing a recession following the, the energy crisis that we're in right now. So if you would take the initiative and take it to the European Council and team up with other European leaders, that would really be following through on the promises made in Prague. Uh, Suda, do you think that the defense industry, though, is capable of even producing this equipment? Because there is not just a recession, there are supply chain issues that continue post-pandemic. And can they actually build the stuff that is needed for Ukraine? Sure. And also these um, sophisticated weapons also um, have like longer life cycles to develop, right? It's not like they're off the shelf and you can send them out. None of the countries are probably sending everything that Ukraine would like to have. But Germany, unfortunately, has really been called out for being very slow and hesitating on sending the material that Ukraine wanted. And also, unfortunately, had some issues with sending weapons that were faulty, that didn't work. But I do think that this country is going to try to deliver weapons at a faster pace. Um, but at the end of the day, I don't think Ukraine will ever get what it exactly wants from a country like Germany. And as you mentioned, it's also a matter of just being able to produce for its own army and for um, helping Ukraine in, in its plight. Anna, one of the other things that was mentioned during this speech in Prague was uh, Olaf Scholz calling for an expansion of the EU and an end to individual member states having veto power. What are the prospects for that vision? It's very, very difficult because in order to change that rule, we would need unanimity. And uh, I don't know how uh, that will be feasible right now. And, and I don't think the German chancellor does. Um, it's not a new idea. It's, it's in the coalition treaty that they will work towards that um, in the small European section. Um, but I think it's worth trying again. It would certainly make sense. And yes, it, it will be interesting to see how they're going about it.
So some of the countries that may not be in favor of giving up their veto, I assume. Like the Czech Republic, the host of the conference. (laughs) Hungary, Poland, you know, the smaller ones that like to have this hold this way. But to give Chancellor Schultz credit, I mean, some of the ideas may not be new, but at least he expressed these ideas. And I think that's what Europe has also been waiting for. Macron made his speech at the Sorbonne about, you know, strengthening Europe and Chancellor Merkel didn't really address or take Macron's hand, you know, his outstretched hand. And we now have a chancellor here in Germany that is addressing questions of Europe and um, making Europe a power on its own in the global system. Well, President Emmanuel Macron, who you mentioned, um, he did come up with his own vision for a European political community, I think is what it's called, which would exist separately from the EU and be open to countries that are aspiring to join the EU as well as the UK, the post-Brexit UK. What are the prospects for that? Is that a more likely scenario than having an EU bloc that doesn't have veto power the way it exists now? Well, Schultz seemed to come out on the other side of the coin um, with, with regard to that topic. But it seems to me that Macron's idea actually seems more pragmatic and the appetite for EU enlargement, considering what's going on right now with Ukraine, I'm assuming most electorates would probably prefer that sort of idea. But, you know, this is something that uh, Brussels will have to eventually um, put on the agenda. Let me ask both of you about the impact that Olaf Scholz and the German government have had on weakening Russia or Vladimir Putin whether it's with its site and vendor, whether it's with speeches, whether it's with delivery of weapons, because that ultimately is the goal, obviously, is to try and end this conflict and sort of push Russia back within its borders. And uh, Anna, you can start. Uh, I have followed with great interest a debate on how the sanctions are actually affecting Russia's economy. I think there are a lot of indicators that Russia is having problems, um, especially buying uh, Western technologies, IT that it would also need for its defense industry to keep the war machine going. Also after this winter, I think we also see um, slowly recession starting in Russia, certain products not being available anymore to the public. So that feeling of normalcy that many Russians or the middle-class Russians in Moscow and uh, in the larger cities still have may start to fade. Um, And I know there's a big debate on whether Russia is still able to compensate its oil revenues with uh, selling to other countries like China, like India. They do so with great discount. So the money flow is not the same money flow they would get if they sold it to European countries like Germany. Overall, I don't think uh, I, I can really judge that right now, but it's certainly interesting debate to follow, yes. Soda, what do you think? You know, we're at the six-month mark of this terrible war, and time will tell um, whether sanctions are um, effective. But as Anna mentioned, we may think in the transatlantic sphere that Russia is isolated, but he is still trading with China. He's trading with India and profiting, therefore, on oil and gas. So there is some income there, and Russia has its reserves. In a way, Putin is probably prepared for this battle. Whether it's sustainable in the long term, to me, seems like it's inevitable that it's a losing battle. For who? For Russia or for Germany? For Russia long term. So then my last question to both of you is, what do you think will ultimately happen with the Zeitung Venda? If you can dial it forward however far you want to dial it forward. And so we'll start with you. So I like to think of the book by Fritz Stern, um, 
the five Germanys I've known. And if the site and Venda is really um, followed through on, then I do think we'll see a more self-confident Germany, a Germany that realizes that there is a geo a uh, political world, and sometimes force is necessary for defending democracy. Anna? Yeah, I do think there's no way back. Uh, I don't know what Germany will look like in the future. I think the political class has very well understood and has really entered a new phase um, of geopolitical thinking. I don't see them yet really communicating that to the wider public and taking the wider public with them on that path. And I think whether it will really be a success, like a great mental change for all of the country will very much depend on that. Well, it's a fascinating conversation, but unfortunately we're out of time, so we'll have to leave it there. My guests today are GMF Senior Transatlantic Fellow in Berlin, Office Deputy Director Suda David Wilp, and Foreign Editor for the weekly Die Zeit, Anna Sauerbrei. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you, Soraya. And thank you for listening to Transatlantic Takeaway, a joint production by the German Marshall Fund in Common Ground Berlin. I'm your host, Soraya Serhati Nelson. Our senior producer is Dina El-Sayed, and our social media editor is Stefano Montali. Common Ground Berlin is made possible through a grant administered by the German Ministry for Economic Affairs and Climate Action. Our partners are Goethe Institute and the German Marshall Fund of the United States. All Common Ground Berlin and GMF's Out of Order episodes are available wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to also check out our respective podcast websites, commongroundberlin.com and gmfus.org.